Hey everybody, thanks for tuning in to Deep Dive, the all music books podcast where we speak with authors of music books, bios, history, criticism, cultural takes, and everything in between. I'm your host, Steve J. Today's guest is Eric Wolfson, who wrote an entry for the 33 and a Third series on the record from Elvis in Memphis. Welcome, Eric. Thank you. Thanks for having me, Steve. This is very cool. Awesome. Well, listen, we do a lot of authors from 33 and a Third, and I know that a lot of writers like it because you get a kind of a wide berth about what you want to talk about. So give us your pitch to 33 and a Third. What is it about this record that you wanted to write about? Yeah, well, I personally had always wanted there to be an Elvis volume in the 33 and a Third series. At the time that I pitched this, he was, I think, probably the most famous rock and roll figure that didn't have a volume yet. I also always felt like the series needed more 50s performers. I had been pitching Elvis albums for the last 10 years, but this one came together as the best pitch in hindsight. It's really just the idea of, you know, we think of the young Elvis as like the quintessential young, sexy rock icon. But with this record, you get sort of a more mature Elvis, a more soulful Elvis. It's a great little underdog story, too, because instead of using all the fanciest state-of-the-art studios, he goes back home to uh, record in Memphis at American Sound Studios with Chip Moman and the Memphis Boys, which is sort of a ramshackle setup that actually was still producing some of the finest hits in America at that point. It felt like very much a coming-home story, almost like a um, sort of like Oedipus type thing, and also sort of prodigal son in terms of he had just come off the 68 comeback special, and that was a huge success. And now this was sort of his blank check, if you will, that he could use however he wanted to sort of cash in on his newfound status. This was how he chose to do so, and it's pretty remarkable. And uh, I think stands as a high watermark for his studio recordings. Agreed. And a super hot band. And we'll get into that. You know, I mentioned it to you. My mom was a huge Elvis fan. So I grew up listening to that stuff and she saw him in concert in Hawaii. How, how did you get into Elvis? Well, my parents got me a, we called it a boom box at the time <laughs> for my eighth or ninth birthday. You know, everyone in the family had a different radio station they listened to. So I said to my mom, what radio station I listened to? She said, what do you want to hear? I said, the Beatles. She said, okay, put on oldies, which was in hindsight, she probably should have said classic rock. So I basically set it to oldies 103.3. And for some reason, it never occurred to me that I could change the station. So <laughs> I just always left it on there. And pretty much for every one Beatles song you got, you got about five Elvis songs. That was sort of my trial by fire. And then I discovered Jay Gordon's Elvis in the Morning Sunday Morning Show. And I'd listen to that. And he'd interview people that were friends with Elvis and whatnot. And just sort of became this... Uh, sort of cool thing that not too many people my age were into, but there was still sort of a whole culture around. As a teenager, I went to Graceland and Sun Records, and it was just just snowballed from there. <laughs> See, and now, and now we get to interview you about your Elvis book, so that's pretty cool full circle in itself. Definitely. Thank you. Your book opens with a very powerful sentence. The very first sentence in the book, it reads, In 1968, Elvis Presley was worse than dead. He was irrelevant. Can you explain that? Sure thing. Um, sort of it just I really wanted to get across that at the time that Elvis did the 68 comeback special, he was really not even on the map. I mean, he was still making records and they were selling fine, but he wasn't having top 10 hits regularly, let alone top five hits. And people like, you know, the Beatles and Dylan, who were themselves originally huge Elvis fans, it totally eclipsed him. And he was, you know, it was sort of this tragic type situation where he had helped to launch this music with, you know, a bunch of other 50s pioneers, but now it had gone beyond him so that he wasn't really even a part of the conversation anymore. 
you know, there's lots of reasons for that, but really he just, I think, had a really outmoded management style that was really based on how promotion was done in the 50s, whereas the 60s underground music and, and psychedelic music really kind of blew all that up. We think of Elvis now as super famous and relevant, but there was a whole, you know, almost 10 years where he basically didn't put out an influential record, arguably, at least compared to people like the Beatles and Dylan and the Stones and the Beach Boys. The original opening of the book was actually him recording Old MacDonald at a farm, oh, which he recorded for the Double Trouble soundtrack, which came out a day before Sgt. Pepper. So that that was originally the opening. I just wanted to get a good juxtaposition of where Elvis was versus where the sort of rock music scene was. It's a perfect line, too. And what you just mentioned about his outdated management, you know, you point out in your book, Elvis didn't write songs. He, he did have some credits because he owned a publishing company and they funneled the money to him. But generally yeah. speaking, he did not write songs and he would just pick them. And I think... You know, how he lost his way is he started letting other people pick the songs for him. And, and we'll get into that because that's part of what, you know, his resurgence in his material is sort of what makes this record special. Definitely. But, you know, you mentioned a couple times the 68 comeback special on TV. And, and that is an, just an amazing document. You know, he, he wanted to prove his vitality. He looked and sounded great. But I was really interested to read in your book, the young director of that show, Steve Binder. Mm -hmm. He challenged Elvis. And can you tell our listeners what Binder asked him and the experiment that was put into motion? Absolutely. It's actually one of my very favorite Elvis stories. At some point, I think in June 68, when they're just starting the rehearsal sessions and whatnot for the special, one of them was looking out the window and Elvis said to Steve, I wonder what would happen if I just, you know, went outside and just walked down the street. And Binder turned it back around to Elvis and was like, what do you think would happen? It's like, I don't know. Like, what do you think? I don't know. It was just sort of this weird standoff thing. But then a couple of days later, Elvis got in his head that he was going to test out this experiment. So he uncharacteristically, and, and that's actually something too, is that there are a lot of moves that he made surrounding the 68 comeback special and the making of this album where he didn't do what he would normally do. So normally he would always go out with this whole entourage. They would famously rent amusement parks and movie theaters in Memphis for just boys nights out and whatnot. Um, and they all got ready to go because they were always hanging around with him. And he basically was like, no, I just want this to be me and Steve. And they went out and they walked down the street on the strip. And basically nobody turned their head. No one stopped their car. At one point, I guess, after a few minutes, Elvis starts waving to the cars going by, <laughs> which is just sort of sad. And, you know, nothing. It's, it's basically a big wake up call for Elvis that, you know, yes, the world has really moved on. And Binder had always said, that he figures that Elvis was always told by the colonel, Colonel Parker, his over-domineering manager, that, oh, you know, Elvis, you're so famous. It's just like how it was in 1956. Like, if you go outside, you're just going to get mobbed. Like, they can't even control it. You know, that would be true maybe for the Beatles or Mick Jagger or somebody like that at that time, but, you know, not for Elvis. And uh, Binder says in his accounts that he thinks that if people had known that was really Elvis, that it would have been a bigger deal. They just thought, if anything, that it was someone who looked like Elvis. With all due respect to Steve Binder, I, I'm not convinced by that. It's, I think there's a good chance Elvis would be around. I think he's pretty, like, unmistakably Elvis. Right. So I personally sort of have always walked away from that story that people really just didn't really notice him. And that was that. And the idea that he became so big, but that there's always sort of this fear that he could kind of go back to being obscure. Wow. 
Well, I'm sure he didn't expect that. That's for sure. And yeah, you had mentioned, you know, where he was at at this time. And, you know, really after his first couple of records and, of course, his Christmas record. Yep. But most of his output had been singles. And then up until that time, more filler or movie soundtracks, which were all pretty tepid musically. Yep. And the TV special re-energized him. It's the day after his 34th birthday. He got some input from a couple of guys in his entourage that would bring about this record. You know, after that whole incident walking down the street, Elvis definitely really put himself into the project in a way that I'm not sure he had before. He really committed himself. And I think that's a big part of the story, too, is Elvis is great, but he's great when he's committed. And unfortunately, for the you know 60s Hollywood years, for the most part, he isn't engaged and there's right. no stakes and he's just phoning it in. And, you know, 68 Comeback Special happens, and especially the sit-down concert part of the show where it basically predicts the unplugged format by, you know, 20 years, um, where he's sitting down with his old buddies and jamming, which was originally they were going to film in the dressing room because they were just doing that between takes in the dressing room. And Binder was like, this is as good as anything we're doing on stage. Like, let's get some cameras in here. But so they, they moved it out, and that's now kind of the most famous part of the special. So anyway, the special is aired, and it's a huge ratings hit. It's a huge critically acclaimed. And I mean, they say, you know, that Elvis was completely nervous. that He saw this as his make or break. Like, he wasn't going to get another shot as good as this, like a primetime special, NBC, Christmas season, end of the year, and 68, which itself is an epic year with not just the music, but the politics and just all the revolution going on and everything. And so the uh, special airs, everyone loves it. He does great. And then, you know, his birthday is January 8th. And so he's sitting around kind of the next day and um, his producer, Felton Jarvis for RCA, who was sort of his assigned producer, was talking to him about, you know, the next sessions like, oh, you know, we got some sessions lined up for you and RCA Nashville. And Elvis was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, whatever. Sure. And just sort of like just okaying him, but not really paying attention. And then there are two people in his kind of uh, inside group, George Klein, who was a DJ in Memphis. And another guy named Marty Lacker, who was another old friend of Elvis that basically worked as assistant for him. And they both worked as advisors and just sort of used their connections to kind of help guide his career. In both their autobiographies, they essentially claim credit for being the one to tell Elvis, if you're so tired of courting at these RCA places, you know, you got to give Chips Moments American Sound Studio a try. It's just down the street. You know, it was about a 10 minute drive from Graceland in Memphis. They're like, it may not be very nice, but they're cutting some of the biggest hits in the world right now. And, you know, they give you the best. It's what you deserve. It's something different. And you could make some really great music. As far as I could piece together, um, it seems as though one of them was talking to him outside the dinner room. And then when Elvis said what he always said, which is, yeah, maybe I'll do that later. Elvis then went into the dinner room. Then the other one was there and was able to then build on it. So they really were able to echo each other. And I think that's kind of what the, put the confidence in Elvis. So that by the time they were done eating dinner, he said, okay, like, let's call Chips. Let's see what he can arrange. She's like, but I got to I gotta start on Monday. So they called Chips Moment, who would always want to work with Elvis. And Neil Diamond had a session that day. So uh, uh, Chips hastily rearranged that. Neil Diamond got bumped off, but then they actually <laughs> had Elvis record a Neil Diamond song in the later parts of the sessions, I think is sort of a thank you to him in a way. And yeah, that was that was sort of how he got to American Sound. Well, Lacker at the time was working at American Sound sort of as like an assistant type person. He was trying to get out of his Elvis bubble a little bit. And Klein had done radio promotion through them. So they both had firsthand knowledge. I think they both can accurately be credited with you know, helping to put the idea in Elvis's ear. 
but it was really Elvis's, you know, thumbs up that, that made it. Yeah, he certainly took it on a challenge because, as you mentioned, it's it's not what he was used to. And uh, he called it a funky studio when he first saw it. That's right. Those guys could play, though, and, and Chip's moment is quite the character. And there's a great story that he asserts himself with the so-called Memphis Mafia, like on day one. And Elvis was quite impressed, wasn't he? Yes. Yeah, no one had, no one had spoke to Elvis that way or his little yeah insider clique. I think it's like the leader of the Memphis Horns, the trumpet player that said that the musicians were trying to cut a record and Elvis's friends were, you know, the royal court jesters trying to entertain him, basically. And that it was just really annoying and they were all just strutting around and, you know, like peacocks and it was just annoying, basically. So <laughs> they uh, basically threw everybody out or told them, you know, to leave. And Elvis was like, I'll take care of it. And it sort of wasn't a problem again after that. Um, there's some dispute over if people were thrown out directly by chips or whether, you know, they just talked to Elvis and then Elvis sort of went and solved the problem on his own. But as far as I could tell in my research, the only person who got kicked out was one of the publishing house people that kept on pushing their the normal songs that Elvis would record. Uh, we had alluded earlier to the fact that, you know, Elvis got a kickback from the publishing company from Hill and Range he was only getting access to these songs. So he was missing all these opportunities to record these songs simply because they weren't written by Hill and Range artists. His recordings at American Sound, they basically didn't worry about that. And they recorded songs they thought were good hit songs. Right. Um, so it's telling that the one person that everyone agrees got ejected was one of the Hill and Range song pushers. Yeah. And the, the city and the musical history of Memphis played a huge role in this album. Definitely. Yeah. With, with that it's like I said, it's very much a homecoming album, but Memphis is just a very interesting sort of crucible of just music and culture in that with Sun Records and American Sound and Stax, it really sort of has almost three generations of distinct musical flavors that really goes, you know, from the blues to rock to funk in a way that few other cities can claim. And I think, you know, a lot of it has to do with it being South, it being close to other key places. It was middle of the country enough to be stopway for the uh, great migration in the 20th century for African-Americans that were moving north. It was one of those great cities like St. Louis that had, you know, all these great music and influences from further south. And it just really became a, a melting pot. I mean, it's just it's a very special place, definitely like a one of a kind city. And Elvis loved it. I mean, he was 13 when he moved to Memphis, but he really took it on as his home. He loved the music. He loved the gospel music and the churches and the community. And he's sort of coming from an interesting spot because he was so poor. You know, he was going to a white high school and everything, but he still interacted a lot with African-Americans and he really sought out that culture. He would go to Lansky Brothers to buy suits, which was, you know, a major African-American uh, store and and um, he really sort of took it upon himself. I don't really want to get into cultural like theft or whatnot because everyone has their own opinion, but I've definitely seen a lot of people that knew him from back in the day in that scene who can attest to the fact he was genuinely interested in, you know, learning about blues and gospel and, you know, those styles and sort of amalgamating it into his own styles with country and whatnot. You know, Elvis could only come out of a place like Memphis because Memphis, there is just such a variety of music and the music is everywhere. If you've ever been to Memphis, it's just it's just everywhere. We're speaking with Eric Wolfson, who wrote a book for the 33 and a third series on From Elvis in Memphis, one of the really great Elvis Presley records. You know, Elvis had a habit of, of showing up at studios late at night and then working all the way through the day in the morning. And, you know, you mentioned 
Elvis and the band worked at feeling each other out in the songs, and it was almost like rehearsals that got taped and somehow became the product. I mean, it's an amazing process. It is, definitely. And that's the other key thing about Memphis as a city is that up until, you know, Stax and uh, American Sound sort of established themselves in the 60s, Sam Phillips was the only game in town. So if blues musicians or country musicians wanted to record in Memphis, they had to go to Sun Records. Hmm. And, you know, luckily for them, Sam Phillips was absolutely brilliant. He would always say, getting the artist to free whatever's inside of them, which I think is a very good way and characteristically not super humble way for him to put it in that he could, you know, really make people feel at ease. I always felt like he was as much a producer as he probably was a therapist in terms of working for hours and hours. Cause you know, Elvis, if he had walked into RCA straight off, they wouldn't have known what to do with him. He just, you know, it, he needed grooming. He needed encouragement and confidence and whatnot. And, you know, and you can see it, Jerry Lee Lewis and Johnny Cash and all the people that he recorded that are so famous now, he really, it was through sort of mentoring them in a way and sort of opening up the space of creativity enough that they could sort of stumble on their own sound in their own way. So when Elvis said, when he walked into American Sound, you know, oh, what a funky studio, I like it. Some of the people that I've read, um, I think it was George Klein actually, uh, remembers him saying, what a funky studio, it reminds me of Sun. And in that it was like sun, it, it was on the street. It was, you open the door and you were in the recording studio. There was no, you know, labyrinth of hallways and whatnot and no, you know, sky rise buildings like, you know, Nashville or whatnot. So it was a special place to record. He recorded everything in the middle of the floor with the band essentially around him and playing live. And the idea was that they would get a live take with the vocal. And then once they got that, they'd go over and sort of sweeten the vocals or fix them as need be. But that the actual initial recording and the feel would all be done live, which Elvis had done with pretty much all of his best early 50s recordings, definitely at Sun, and then also, for the most part, at RCA. But then by the 60s, again, when he's recording these soundtrack movies for Hollywood, since it was sort of all about product, 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 I mean, you, you, you made 31 films, and you know a lot of those were three movies a year. It was just faster to pre-record everything and just have them overdub a vocal, which is just so soulless as a way to make music. Although he never returned to American Sound, he used this sort of process of being there live with the you know actual breathing people so that they could feed off of each other in a way that you know makes the music great the way that I just think almost all great rock and roll is, whether it's you know Sun Records stuff or early Motown or even something like, you know, the Kingsman Louie Louie, like you, you could, you couldn't get that stuff by overdubbing and whatnot. Right. A lot like Muscle Shoals or some of those studios down oh, south too. I mean, absolutely. Yeah. No. You, so you mentioned soul and we've talked about Memphis uh, and let's talk about some of the songs. One thing is for sure, as I just mentioned, you know, the band had a huge part also in, in making these what they are. And there are some stone cold classics. And then there are some songs that are perhaps lesser known, but if you listen to them, they really, really hold their own. And, and you know, your book sent me back to that playlist. Most of the songs I knew, I didn't know it as an album, but I went back and listened to it. And, you know, from the very first notes, the opener, wearing that loved on look lets you know that, you know, this is a different game for Elvis. Definitely. And the players were just, I mean, they were absolutely phenomenal. And like Chips, they didn't take any BS, basically. They you know, there's a story of them playing the demos for Elvis on the first day. They said to Bobby Wood, the piano player, what do you think of these? And Bobby Wood said, I think they're shit. <laughs> Someone then turned to Elvis, hey, Bobby Wood thinks that these are shit. And then I guess there was sort of an awkward moment, but then Elvis just burst out laughing. And, you know, no one had ever, he hadn't been in the studio where they were so blunt with him. 
because they were right. Like the songs right. were not very good. That's why only one of them ended up making the album. You know, and the musicians, I just want to tick off their names. One of my goals for the book, I feel like Elvis is so usually treated as sort of this force in and of himself. But for me, all my favorite periods of his music, be it the Sun Records, early RCA, the 1960 uh, Elvis's back LP, and of course the sit-down concerts, he's with a band and he's with a great band. They might not be the most technically you know, profound, but they're a great band. I really wanted this book to tell the story of you know, making an album as a team and that you know, Elvis is obviously the leader and he's the front man, clearly, but that everybody was important in a way where you know if you listen to bob dylan solo it's a very different experience than listening to him live with the band in 66 and it's really a conversation so um you know with the drummer gene chrisman and the bassist mike leach and um tommy cogbill who also was sort of the assistant producer the organist bobby emmons the pianist bobby wood and then guitarist reggie young were the core of the band I mean, they were just one of the best bands ever. And it really it really makes me sad that they're not, A, better known, but B, they're not even in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, even once they've opened up the studio musician category. They're just sort of unheralded. And, you know, one of my goals for the book, among many others, was to sort of get awareness out there because Chip's moment for sure should be in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And I think all these guys, too. Well, you know, you, you do point that out. And, and, you know, like I said to you, if the goal is to do that and people go back and listen, it's impossible not to hear what they're doing, especially when you know the backstory that they're all kind of making it up as they go along. I mean, they had a basic arrangement and Elvis, you know, he changed the lyrics and, you know, moved around choruses and bridges and stuff. But right. the finished result is just incredible. It is. Absolutely. Let's talk about Long Black Limousine because yes. uh, that's just brutal. I mean, it's amazing, too. <laughs> but that is a brutally sad song. But it's a high point in the Presley canon, in my opinion. Me, too. It is one of my very, very favorite Elvis songs, personally. I think, I mean, really, the, I was thinking about it the other day. I think the only songs I would ever put above it, and this is just for my own opinion, not like what was his greatest thing ever, would be probably Milk Cow Blues Boogie and If I Can Dream. Um, Very different. Yeah. <laughs> they are. Long Black Limousine is probably the best, and most days I'd probably say that. I don't think there's any other song that really forces Elvis to approach the themes of his life and his culture in such a direct way. It's an old country weeper. It was written in the 50s and first recorded in the 60s. And it's sort of this weird song that all these, you know, half a dozen people recorded. There's only ever one charting hit of it that I think was uh, Jody Miller in 1968, hit like 73 on the Billboard charts with it. It's sort of like a corny kind of parlor ballad type song where, you know, the girl leaves the little town for the big city and she, you know, swears that she's going to go off and become a star. And, you know, the guy that sings the song is, you know, just a random guy that clearly is in love with her. And she says, I'll be back in a long black limousine. The twist of the song is that she's actually been killed in a car crash. And the long black limousine coming home is actually a hearse carrying her corpse. It's brutal. Um, (laughs) It is. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's just like a kind of an epic song. It's interesting for a lot of reasons. One of which I think is that sort of a meditation on American fame, American success and American failure. And Elvis is such a just almost cliche version of the American dream that it's, you know, it's easy to forget that it's also 100% true. The fact that he's literally this, 
you know, dirt poor Southern boy, rags to riches. The closest thing we'll probably get to like an overnight sensation, even though he really had been working for years. And, you know, he then all of a sudden one day just has everything he could ever want. And in interview after interview in the 50s that, you know, he's constantly saying, I'm afraid I'm going to wake up and it's all going to be over. He's like, I don't know how long it's going to last. I just, you know, I don't, all I know is I haven't changed all it, like he's sort of kind of going through an almost imposter syndrome. You know, for him to sing this song at this point, and it's actually the song they began the sessions with, which further blows my mind. Like you said, it's a completely brutal song, but then it also forces him to sing from the perspective of basically an anonymous poor person, or, you know, at least middle class, one would presume, perspective about someone who then does become, you know, a huge star and then dies. And um, at the same time, it's also sung in the second person. So it, you know, Elvis sings to us. And then in that regard, it then makes it so that the listener becomes the dead movie star in a way, if, if you look at it that way. It's just like this, re all these layers, I think of like love and dreams and, you know, American values and everything. Well, it's interesting. You write a lot about that in your book, that on this record, and one of the things that perhaps makes it so great is that Elvis takes on some very different characters for him and the perspective, as you mentioned. I'm Moving On is another one that's a great song, but a different perspective for him. Yeah, well, maybe. That's interesting you say that. I've always seen I'm Moving On as in line more with like Mystery Train and stuff like that because it's, or, or Mel Cablu's Boogie in terms of, you know, the whole you've been treating me wrong and now I'm leaving. Like, which is sort of a, a, you know, classic blues trope, even though pretty much all the songs from the album, it was actually originally a country song by Hank Snow. And so I, I sort of see it more as sort of a continuation of that kind of, you know, going down the road on his own type thing, if that makes sense. It does. I, I always took it as leaving his girlfriend or wife or whoever it is. You know, he didn't really have that kind of nastiness, not necessarily nastiness, but that perspective. You know, um, yeah, because I and I, I always heard it. Through, I, I think I first learned the Rolling Stones version, which is, you know, very different, also <laughs> very different, but also, you know, a lot sort of crasser in a way. But yeah, I know you're right. He's able to use these songs like that to really kind of map out these characters. That's kind of a sad irony of Elvis is that. You know, he really had ambitions to be a decent actor for reasons that we don't have time to get into here. Kind of never got a square opportunity to do that. But if you want to hear Elvis acting, the best place to go is his music. Mm. Because, you know, a song like Long Black Limousine or I'm Moving On, he so fully embraces the perspective of the song. It's, in my opinion, it's like watching, you know, a young Brando or something like that. And so let's go to another one, which is, is really weird on paper, and that's Gentle on My Mind, which, of course, was made famous by Glenn Campbell. Yep. And it's a very interesting choice and a very interesting version here, but it was different mostly because of the, I guess, the lyrical flow or something you write about. Yeah, it's, it's an odd song for him to choose. It was actually written by and first performed by John Hardwood, who was a kind of more of a folk singer. Um, he was actually on RCA and produced by Felton Jarvis, uh, Elvis's producer. So he's actually a, a label made of Elvis, although I don't think they ever crossed paths. He released it on his first album, and then Glenn Campbell somehow heard it and was like, that's amazing. And then, as you say, made it popular. But it's a very, definitely like a Bob Dylan-style type narrative in that the lyrics just sort of cascade on in a way that you don't usually get in at that point in country music and a lot of rock. It's weird, too, because Glenn Campbell was able to you know, make it so popular when he got his TV show, that was the theme song, that it became sort of enough of a standard that you know Sinatra covered it and Dean Martin covered it and 
eventually Aretha Franklin. And it was just sort of this, you know, conversation that was happening in these different versions. And for Elvis, you know, it's a very wordy song. The thing that I that I like about Elvis's version and I thought was interesting when I was going back and listening to all the other versions floating around, of which there are just dozens in this period, is that Elvis's was the slowest. And so he really sort of took his time with it, whereas other people, you can hear Sinatra uncharacteristically getting, you know, tripped up in the rhythm at parts and whatnot. But, you know, Elvis just sort of takes his time with it and just does a very earnest reading of it. And it's, you know, an example where he doesn't overdo it. He doesn't push too hard. He just sort of lets the lyrics sing themselves. Obviously, they're lovely lyrics. There's just so much traveling going on in that song. It's remarkable. Um, and then it ends with like the beautiful image from the basically the like Woody Guthrie-esque soup lines, uh, vagrant hobo towns they had set up or whatnot, like Great Depression era, which is just almost bizarre to think that that was actually, you know, real life when Elvis was growing up. Not for Elvis, but just at that time in America. Yeah, and maybe that's part of the Memphis influence, you know, inadvertently. There's a couple of huge ballads on this record. They might be the best-known songs that Elvis did for a lot of folks. And, you know, you mentioned some of his earlier son stuff, and a lot of people gravitate towards that. But again, with this particular band, they're not schlocky. And in fact, it's quite the opposite. They're very soulful and funky and contemporary, and, and Elvis is just killer on the singing. And that's a great point. That's the thing is people at first will be like, oh, like, even if they know the comeback special, everyone lumps together basically post comeback special as, you know, Elvis in a jumpsuit overweight, you know, even just getting people to realize that there's a difference between when, you know, when Elvis originally put on the jumpsuit to then, you know, five years later, it's not the same ball game. And there's enough elements of what would make his music so saccharine and cheesy later on. If you don't listen very closely you might just hear some of the elements, the way the strings or the horns are, and be like, oh, this is, you know, cheesy Elvis. But as you say, it's not. It's soulful and it's funky, and it's almost begins to walk the line of that, but then it, you know, it doesn't cross over. It's a lot like the Dusty Springfield the um, from Dusty and Memphis record, which is also all these people. That's a great counterpoint, too, because that's a great record, and a lot of people didn't think that was country or whatever. And you listen to it, it's just one of a kind. It is. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode. Available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. 
Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So, what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right, you'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. We're speaking with Eric Wolfson. He wrote a book for the 33 and a third series from Elvis and Memphis. Kind of the last two songs anyway that I wanted to talk about to me are way up in Elvis's catalog and they close out the record. Kentucky rain is pretty damn close to a perfect song and a perfect take here. It is. It is absolutely. It was recorded in the sessions, but it was actually held off the album to be a single in 1970. So they put it back on? It's it's not on the original running order. The reissues have it as a bonus track. Oh, okay. I agree with you that that's one of his like top 10 best performances, period. So I am very happy to talk about that song. Kentucky Rain, I think, is one of the most dramatic songs Elvis ever sang. It's First of all, it's a beautiful song. And the way that they arranged it with the um, the louds and the softs and the dynamics of it, the way the instruments sort of snake around each other and then and then like pull back just as quickly. There's a lot of space in the song. And then it's just a beautiful lyric about a guy that's trying to find his lover and he doesn't know why she's gone. He never finds out why she's gone. And you as a listener don't either. It's, it's almost like a grown-up version of Sally Go Round the Roses. You like you don't really know what's going on, but you're drawn in. And um, just the image of walking in the cold Kentucky rain is just such a powerful but simple image. And I always loved how it ends with the hitching a ride with the preacher because the song, as sad and inconclusive as the song is, it ends with a prayer. It ends with the preacher saying a prayer to Elvis, or the singer rather. And Elvis, who is you know immensely spiritual, I think that probably really drew him into the song and was something that would have been very real for him. That wouldn't have just been like a random lyric to sing. I think it resonated. And I think if I were to offer up to anyone, you know, why you guys talk about the Memphis boys, why are they so hot? That's the song I'd probably point to because they're just kicking it on that song. I know. It's crazy because if you listen to it without the vocal, like I said, it's like there's all this space that you don't realize is there. It's like some of the stuff from Pet Sounds or Revolver where if you take away the, the singing you don't realize just how much is going on and how much of it's like just space and yeah. or just using rhythmic sounds or whatnot in very unusual ways. And I mean, it's a, it's a masterpiece. I do not understand how Don't Cry Daddy hit number six <laughs> and Kentucky Rain hit 16. And I love Don't Cry Daddy. I think that song's gorgeous. Kentucky Rain should have been a number one hit in my book. Well, speaking of brutal, you mentioned um, the fat white jumpsuit Elvis. And, you know, I think, unfortunately, there's a huge part of the population that when they think of Elvis, that's probably flashes in their mind, you know, as opposed to some of these other things. Suspicious Minds, which is on this record, I think maybe gets unfairly linked to the Vegas jumpsuit Elvis. And while it is a big ballad, it's so good. So I have to ask, am I wrong on either of these counts? (laughs) (laughs) I don't think you are wrong. This actually was also held off as a single, but I do discuss it in my book just because it's so big and important to this period and it's the most famous song from the sessions. And it's interesting the way they put it together too because they had already recorded, the writer, uh, Mark James, was somebody 
who was in the inner circle at American Sound, and they recorded a version with Mark James that was released as single and didn't go anywhere. So they knew the song, they knew the arrangement, which is part of how they were able to pull it together so succinctly and successfully for Elvis. But at the same time, Elvis really struggled to get the timing right in the song, and you can hear it building over the takes, and he keeps messing up at the same spot, and the um, spot that he messes up on is uh, when he says, you know, can I see suspicion in, in your eyes, I think. And you can hear when he nails it the first time, and you can kind of hear people kind of cheer, and they're sort of rooting him on in a way, which is really just just so lovely. Some days you're just you're trying to do something, whatever it is, kind of work, and it just keeps not landing for you. Right. And it's the same thing with music and with, you know, Elvis that day. The sort of epilogue for the song that makes it sort of an interesting transition from this Memphis stuff to the Vegas stuff is that then Colonel Parker booked all these Vegas shows, Elvis's first Vegas shows, um, about three or four months after this record came out. And in my opinion, I think it was sort of him kind of putting the alpha dog move in terms mm. of... The Colonel wanted the 68 comeback special to be a Tux and Tails family Christmas special where Elvis sang Christmas carols. Mm. And he wanted, you know, from Elvis in Memphis, he reportedly said at one point, you know, let him do it and fall on his ass because, you know, he washed his hands with it because he's just like, this isn't a professional rig. This He's not using the songs that are going to make us a lot of money. The Colonel was just sort of like, let him do it as sort of, you know, here's your little playground, you know, go do it and come back and we'll do something real. So, you know, I think it doesn't take a genius to be like, at some point, Elvis is going to sit down and say, let's see, I defied him on the comeback special and now this record. And it's like some of the greatest stuff I've ever done. And, you know, Elvis wanted to tour the world. And so by setting up shop in Vegas, that was, I think, in my opinion, like a way that Colonel Parker could kind of keep his thumb on him in that, um, you know, he called all the shots. He made all the deals. He booked the nights. He booked the hotels. He set up the press conferences. And he was doing all that while Elvis was recording stuff related to this record. So anyway, when he does first do it, he's very excited about Suspicious Minds. It turns out to be his last Billboard number one of his life. It's simply a great song. He would close with it in his early Vegas shows, and he'd drag out the ending. And he'd do this sort of, he'd make it build, he'd make it fall, he'd make it build, he'd make it fall in this way that was very exciting. Comes across pretty well on the records, uh, the live records. And so to emulate that, the powers that be in RCA mimicked that by then taking sort of an extended version. They took the horns, not from Memphis, but the horns that were backing him in Las Vegas and overdubbed the horns at the end and made it like literally fade up and down so that it sort of mimicked the way he did it live. Hmm. So it was this sort of artificial reconstruction, but it was, you know, it made it run over four and a half minutes. So it sort of, I think, was like a bid to sort of be like an Elvis version of, you know, you can't always get what you want or Hey Jude, like those songs that were just super epic at the time. And, you know, the Memphis Boys, it was like they thought that was BS. You know, they were they were sort of trying to capture this. So it's a sort of an interesting moment that you can see where sort of these other hands are getting in the mix and being like, let's, you know, kind of manipulate this otherwise artifact that's culturally sort of one way and sort of make it into something that's more of a product. And, you know, that's something that I don't think Elvis minded, at least in that regard with that song, but, you know, the Memphis boys, that was offensive to them because right, it was right. just seen as, you know, behind their back. To go back to your original point, it is sort of that rare nexus where it has sort of the trappings of what will sort of eventually undo him in Vegas in terms of the big horns and the, soaring choruses of female backing singers yet no soul <laughs> this uh, yeah exactly but it's still a great song 
and it's still a great performance. And the core band is still great enough there to get that performance out of him in the first place. Yeah, it, it at, again, at first glance, it might seem like, oh, well, this is just, you know, Elvis falling into schmaltz, but really it, it's sort of its own beast. Well, you mentioned epic song, so uh, I had to save In the Ghetto for last. And this was a song that was in heavy rotation in my house when I was just a kid. Um, Elvis always avoided songs with a message due to the aforementioned Colonel Parker, I believe. Yep. So why this one? Well, originally he was going to turn this one down too. They were working on basically these outmoded assumptions. So part of it, you know, with 50s music, he had spent all this time bringing this whole huge audience together. And he was seen as this very, you know, wholesome country boy and whatnot. And then all this music was coming out, protest music and whatnot, and anti-war and pro-civil rights, whatever issues people were singing about. And Elvis sort of always skirted around all that, I think, because he didn't ever want to jeopardize this huge audience he had built up for himself. Because of that, he avoided songs that might do that. Bob Dylan's, you know, writing some of the greatest songs ever written and no way that Elvis camp is going to consider them even besides the copyright issues, because, um, you know, they're just too finger pointing or they're too, you know, controversial. So in the ghetto is really interesting because it makes its way to Elvis and basically he hears it and recognizes it's a great song. The Colonel doesn't like it at all because it it's this, you know, inner city ghetto protest song. And then, so chips, uh, was like, okay, well then I got this other artist lined up who is going to record it. And I guess the fear of that triggered it in Elvis that actually this was too good to pass up. And depending on whose account you go by, again, Marty Lacker and George Klein both have parts of their biographies where they say that they stepped in and were like, Elvis is a good song uh, and sort of helped him change his mind. It's really interesting just because it is very different from Elvis's normal canon. But at the same time, the themes that it contains resonate so strongly with his own life in that it is about albeit sort of the mirror image of Elvis in that it's an African-American boy in the city and Elvis is a you know white boy from the country, it still deals with the same ideas of poverty and trying to rise above that and the disadvantages you're at in terms of the greater society. It's also a song about mothers and sons. And Elvis right. had a, you know, a deep, deep connection with his mother. And I think that also probably really helped hit it home for him too. And then, you know, it was chosen as the lead single off of this. So the first music anybody heard from this record, from these sessions was in the ghetto. So they knew it was something special. It went number one, not on Billboard. It hit three in Billboard, but it hit one in Record World and Cashbox and in the UK. So... It was a huge record. It again proved that Elvis had something to say and that he could do it in a way that was effective and that wasn't, you know, oh, here he is singing another version of Jailhouse Rock or whatever thing that we're beyond. Because it was really about showing that he was a viable artist as opposed to just another performer. And it it fit into the overall story of the album. I don't want to suggest that this is at all a a concept album. It's not that at all. It fit into the context of the record. And you you wrote that it ended the album on an ominous note. Why do you say that? I think the image towards the end of the song of the mother holding the child, the crowd gathered around with the kid face down with the gun in his hand surrounding him. It's one of the one of the most chilling images in an Elvis song. I mean, that's just not the kind of imagery you normally get. And Elvis just sings it totally matter of fact and like he's a reporter there and he's just, this is what happened, folks. And it's very sad. And, you know, of course, then there's the, while the mother's crying over that, another baby boy is born in the ghetto. And, you know, 
a lot of people now hear it as very maudlin and it's almost become a bit of a punchline. There's an episode of New Girl where Zooey Deschanel dresses like Elvis and uses the in the ghetto refrain as almost a punchline, basically, you know, to get people like hyped up, you know, in the ghetto. So it's 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 sort of come full circle at this point. You know, whatever cheesiness we hear now, it, it definitely resonated at the time. There's sort of a lot riding on this album because I think it's his first non-soundtrack, non-gospel, non-compilation album since Potlock in like 1963. So he hadn't actually released a studio album in seven or eight years, not counting the gospel. For him to have his first statement be this record and that be the finale, it's just such a devastating finale. Um, but at the same time, it also ties in with, you know, Elvis's own perspective of being poor, of that being a very real starting place and potentially ending place. That's the thing that I kept reminding myself when I was writing this book is that, you know, Elvis didn't make it big till he was about 20 or 21 nationally. So like he was poor for pretty much as much as he was rich. So half of his life, we default think, oh, Elvis is rich and famous. But that was like the exception for most of his life in his own head. You know, right, he right. just that isn't what he knew. So a song like In the Ghetto, he can really relate to, even though it's the northern version, even though it's inner city, it still speaks to the same themes. And it can be seen as sort of a civil rights message. You know, he was very moved with Dr. King being shot in Memphis. So there's sort of all these underlying things like that, too, that really put it square in a way that brings it a lot more meaning than people often realize today. Well, it is a great, great record, and I, I really enjoyed revisiting it, but I, I especially enjoyed revisiting it with you as my tour guide. And I would tell people that <laughs> it's very satisfying because, um, you know, there's some themes there. And like I said, it's not a concept record at all, but uh, if you think of Elvis as a singles artist, this will change your mind, this record. And I thank Eric Wolfson. His book is from Elvis in Memphis. It's on the 33 and a third series. It's a great book. You know, get your vinyl out or your Spotify on and, and dig in. Thank you very much, Eric. No problem. Thank you. If you'd like to dig deeper into Eric's book, you can check out his website from elvisinmemphis.com or at Instagram at Presley Day by Day or on Twitter at from Elvis in 333. If you would like to buy this book, please go to allmusicbooks.com and you can buy it through our site. You can also check out the rest of our deep dive podcasts there as well and subscribe so you don't miss a thing. I'd also like to thank our engineer, Steve Folsom. You can check him out at fullsound.com. Finally, big ups to Frankie and the Pool Boys for their one-of-a-kind music played throughout the podcasts. You can check them out at frankieandthepoolboys.bandcamp.com and on all of the major streaming services. Please support local and independent writers and musicians. We're out until the next time, and thanks again for tuning in to Deep Dive, an allmusicbooks.com podcast, and now a proud member of the Pantheon Podcast Network. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football 
FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.